essentially that, that people have different tastes and needs. And in a big, big world, some of those tastes and needs can be pretty far out and they can be opposing. So I'll give you an example of this related to the reversal. So, you know, everybody can't, couldn't imagine living without their mobile phone, without their smartphone. And the phones keep getting smarter and smarter and smarter. But let's be honest, for, for most of us, they're sort of smart enough. And in many ways, or for some of us, or for some circumstances, they're too smart. And so, you know, you're, imagine you're a Brooklyn Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Dr. Peter McGraw. Thanks for making time. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, at least virtually. Yeah. So for people that don't know about Hurl, they don't know about your books, can you give us the, the elevator pitch? Sure. Uh, yeah. So um, now now a dozen years ago, I stumbled on the question of what makes things funny, and I turned my kind of boring, esoteric, behavioral economist, academic life on its head and became a humor researcher. I, I run a laboratory called the Humor Research Lab. You, you've already stepped on my punchline, so the acronym is HURL. And I have kind of ventured out into the, the real world, so to speak, in various ways. Um, my first book is called The Humor Code, A Global Search for What Makes Things Funny. Team up with a journalist and we, we travel the world trying to answer peculiar questions about, about humor. And then my most recent book launched during a pandemic, Pro tip, don't ever do that. It's called Stick to Business, what the masters of comedy can teach you about breaking rules, being fearless, and building a serious career. And in it, I try to bring my day job teaching MBAs and my night job decoding comedy together with some useful, hopefully, advice about you know business and career development. Yeah. So, and have you always taught in Colorado? Yes, I did. So that I, I did my postdoc in in the public policy school at Princeton, working with Danny Kahneman, um, who is one of the fathers of of behavioral economics. And but yeah, I've only I've only worked at the University of Colorado. They can't seem to get rid of me. So even though I spend a lot of time elsewhere, it's my but it's a great home base. As, as we were chit-chatting before this, I'm a big fan of Western living. I'm, I'm currently in, in California on leave. Love it. So our listeners will know Shane Snow, author of Smart Cuts from previous episodes. And uh, I was excited. We've talked about this already. I was excited when your people reached out because I was already reading your book. Shane's a big fan and, uh, and I'm a fan. I just finished it yesterday. And uh, well, well, I'll save it for the show because there's so many practical things that I was impressed at the lens that you look through it. And it, I, I feel like it was helpful for me. So l let's jump into one of these though. So okay. how about, how about reversing things? Can you talk about how, what that principle looks like in comedy and how entrepreneurs or innovators might use it? Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, in the book, I make it, I make the case that the average person is not going to benefit from being funnier at work. I actually tell people don't try to be funnier at work. And it's not because I don't think there are benefits. It's just I'm worried about telling a thousand people in business to go forth and be funny. Because, you know, you end up having that guy, you know, the guy who thinks he's funny. And you really just, you just have created a toxic worker. And one toxic worker 
is way worse than one incredibly funny worker. And so, so in the book, I say, don't, don't be funny, think funny. And so chapter one, I call reverse it. And so it's really a, a sort of deep dive into one way that comedians, you know, arguably, at least in the, you know, one of the, the most creative sets of people in the world, right, be able to create laughs on command, think how they sort of either naturally think or learn to think right out of the gate. And so I talk about the reversal. So the reversal is comedy 101. And it can, it can form the basis of a, a punchline. You know, so Henny Youngman, the king of the one-liners, has a, has a joke. He says, when I read about the dangers of drinking, I, Jess, what did he do? He stopped reading. Reading, indeed. Yes, that's right. Which I know would be painful for you. You are a, a big reader. I, I had, I got a chance to speak to Anthony Jeselnik, and he has he has this very hilarious joke. I'm going to butcher it, but do my I'll do my best with it. He says, you know, my parents were really strict. My mom and dad once made me smoke an entire pack of cigarettes in one sitting, just to teach me a valuable lesson about brand loyalty. <laughs> and so, so you know, comics do this. You know, they they create they create punchlines using this this reversal, but they also create premises. So. So Chris Rock has a bit in Tambourine, uh, um, his Netflix special, about the value of bullying, right? The world thinks bullying is bad, and then Chris Rock points out the ways that it's good in terms of preparing you for a very difficult world, a challenging life. You know, he's like, half of education is teacher, the other half is bullies. Or Trainwreck, the Amy Schumer rom-com, you know, flips the normal rom-com script, boy meets girl. Uh, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back in Trainwreck. Very funny movie. Amy Schumer plays the stereotypical boy role, right? Not able to commit, carousing, you know, uh, promiscuous, etc. And so, that you know, that's great for for making jokes. But but one of the valuable things I I think is is that we live in a world where people talk a lot about being creative, but but either don't know how to do it or really don't even embrace it because creative ideas are really scary and they violate the status quo. And, you know, I mean, listeners will appreciate this. I think they recognize how hard it is to, to excel in business, how hard it is to build a business. And what ends up happening though, is because it's so difficult, failure rates are, are so high, you know, 90 plus percent, right? It's, it's like my dating life. You know what I mean? Tremendously difficult to, to make this happen. And what it ends up causing people to do is play things safe when I think what you have to do is the opposite is take to take, you know, to take risks. And the status quo bias really makes it hard to take risks. That is that the loss of a change away from the status quo looms larger than the than the potential gain from that change. Right. And so we are in our hearts, minds and souls more affected by negatives than positives. And so one of the cool things about reversals are they just smash the status quo. They just move so far away from the status quo, in part because they're heading in the opposite direction than people would normally move away from the status quo. And so what ends up happening is when you start looking around into the world of business, you can start to find these really fun, interesting case studies of, of people who have thought in reverse, who sort of naturally think like comedians do. But instead of making punchlines and premises, they're making products and marketing communications. And, and those things, when, when done well, stand out from the rest, so to speak. So I, I believe in this 
idea of standing out so much, but I want to hear why you think it's important. What, like, so many folks are worried about being better. Oh, ours is faster than the other guys. Ours is something like this. But they manage to be better in a way that doesn't stand out, and it seems like they don't yes. make enough money. Or, like, the average consumer is like, I don't know, how much do I care about that, right? Yeah. And yet those folks that are distinctly different in the way they're better seem to just dominate. So in, in your mind, how do you describe the value of, of standing out, of that novelty, the getting attention? Well, yeah, so, so some of it is it's free advertising. You know, I mean, I, I was early in my career when I was thinking about becoming, you know, much more outward facing, much more of a, a public academic. I was, I, you know, the obvious thing that I would have done was to do essentially behavioral economics to, to, do, to talk about decision making. The issue was there's a there's a gentleman in my field who who listeners may know his name is Dan Ariely and Dan Dan is a brilliant guy and he was very early to the sort of pop science stuff his first book I think was a bestseller in 2004 is that predictably irrational or which one predictably irrational he followed up with another bestseller and then another bestseller and so on the man's good and I I remember thinking to myself I can't out Dan Ariely Dan Ariely you know I just can't do it and so why try and so I could, I could have made a little tiny pivot, be a little bit different, you know what I mean? But, but what, what became very clear was, oh, I was like, oh, it's the humor stuff that's going to, to have a chance to pop. Now, I will tell you this, it hasn't been profitable for me, but it has been life and career changing. So it has checked a lot of boxes. It's one of the nice things about having the, the paycheck of an academic. I could, I could live without, without turning it into a, like a big business, but it has been tremendously successful. I remember reading Seth Godin's book, The Purple Cow. And for those of you who are not familiar with the, about The Purple Cow, he talks about you're driving in Kansas, you know, on I-70. And there's just farmland, 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 cow, cow, cow. And there's one purple cow that you see. You don't just drive by and go, well, look, there's a purple cow. You stop the car. You get out of the car. You take pictures of the purple cow. You tell everyone you know, I saw a purple cow. And so I think the value of standing out, albeit can be a risky one, because as we'll, we'll talk about, you can't make everyone happy. But when you make someone happy, boy, they want to talk about it. You know, that's, so that's the first thing. And, and, and as someone who doesn't actually like promoting things, I like the fact that the some of the stuff I have naturally promotes itself. So when you have a lab called Hurl, journalists come to you to talk to you. You don't have to approach them and so on. And so, you know, that even naming my my lab that, you know, really was an act uh, of creativity and it probably took me an extra 20 minutes than than I than I would have otherwise if I wasn't thinking about purple cows. The next thing is that you know, we live in a world with 8 billion people. And yes, there's some universal things that everybody needs, you know, air and water and think universal health care, you know. But really, there's, there's this term in, that I teach in business school called heterogeneity. It's essentially that, that people have different tastes and needs. And in a big, big world, some of those tastes and needs can be pretty far out. And they can be opposing. So I'll, I'll give you an example of this related to the reversal. So you know, everybody can't, couldn't imagine living without their mobile phone, without their smartphone. And the phones keep getting smarter and smarter and smarter. But let's be honest, for, for most of us, they're sort of smart enough. And in many ways, or for some of us, or for some circumstances, they're too smart. 
And so, you know, you're imagine you're a Brooklyn based entrepreneur, actually two Brooklyn based entrepreneurs, and you're thinking about taking on Apple and Samsung in the smartphone market. How do you outsmart those guys? Like that seems pretty difficult to do. Well, if you think like a comedian, if you think in reverse, you don't create a smartphone, you create a dumb phone, right? So you strip away all of the bells and whistles from your phone until you just have the basics, text, call, navigation, alarm, and so on. And you build what these guys did, what they called the light phone. And it's for people who don't want to be more connected, it's to be less connected. And the idea is that in a world of smartphone users, there's a whole bunch of people who want to be more connected, but there's some of us who want to be less connected. And we can't rely on ourselves to, to have the willpower to connect ourselves less. And so then you just buy this machine, which makes it easy to go to the farmer's market without being disturbed. I, I love it. You know, and for everybody that wants to look that up, it's light is L-I-T-E, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a question I have for you, because I was thinking about this, you know, I was thinking about how actually not, not just comedy would prepare someone for entrepreneurship, because there's so many like, you know, you just fail and fail and fail, and then you get your one little whim, right? It's like when you're an entrepreneur, you sell and nobody wants it, nobody wants it, nobody wants it, and somebody wants it a little bit, you know? And then you have mm -hmm. to figure out what they liked about it to double down on and these kind of things. Right? And like skate, you know, I feel like most action sports prepare you for that, but especially skateboarding. Because mm. if you're going to progress, you're mostly not landing, you know? Yes. You're, it's, it's mostly falling, and that's how you get to the point where you're not falling, Right. But if you stop falling, it just means you're not learning any new tricks, right? Yes. So my question is, how I, I'm interested in your mind. Any any thoughts you have is, so I'm listening to this. I'm thinking reversal. Oh, yeah. You know, like I'm trying to build a big real estate investment trust, right? Okay. And, you know, Blackstone and Brookfield already have 500 billion each in assets under management and plenty in their big giant REITs. I'm not going to out Blackstone Blackstone, right? That's right. Yeah. So. If I'm going to do a reversal, I'm going to go another direction. You know, for us, that looks like we're actually just zeroing in on individuals. We're going after entrepreneurs, right, who okay. either want another source of income because they don't want all their eggs in one basket or they just sold a company and they don't want to risk having to do that all over again. So they just want to put some, like, boring, reliable money somewhere where they just mm -hmm. have, like, you know, sleep well at night money, you know. And Wall Street just doesn't care about individuals. I mean, maybe they'll talk to somebody's broker, maybe, but they're not, like – when you can meet with the Saudis and get a $20 billion check at once, you're not sitting with some entrepreneur for a million bucks, right? Yes, I see. Right. So, but my question for you is, it's great for me to try and pat myself on the back. Look, I'm doing a reversal like Dr. McGraw says too, right? Uh, but that balance beam of when am I just being crazy? Or like, how do you know, like, have I reversed enough? Have I, have I gone too far? Like, you know, you, you hear the advantage, somebody like Jonah Berger from Wharton talks about same, same, but different, you know, like the yeah. invisible influence stuff, right? About like, you need to be novel, but you, but don't be so far out there that you scare people, you know? Yeah. And you talk about this in comedy of like the comedians where they, if they break the rules too much, they discuss some people and alienate certain audiences, but if they yes. don't do it enough, it wasn't funny. And can, can you just talk about that sweet spot or, or any principles for the rest of us finding the sweet spot? Yeah. So I... I, I think that your, I mean, your your instincts are right, you know, because what it, what you're really describing is kind of a trial and error process. And I, I joke that vaudeville was the first lean startup. That is that what comedians do when we see a comedian special. So when we see Chris Rock doing tambourine, we just think this man is just so gifted. You know, he just has it. 
so to speak. And what you don't see is the, the time he spends working on jokes, workshopping them, running premises and ideas and kind of crummy punchlines past early audiences, small audiences, and, and paying very close attention to their reactions. And so what comedians do, and I think what Silicon Valley often does, is they, they fail a lot. And Oh, and your, your skateboarders. They're all, they're all the same. They all fit, follow the same thing, which is you don't go out as a skateboarder and try to, to do a trick off a 10-foot staircase. You know, you start with a three, two-foot or three-foot staircase, right? And the idea is that if you eat, you eat it, you, you're not going to destroy yourself. In the same way, you don't, if, you, if your joke doesn't land on a Netflix special, you, you're not screwed, you know, that kind of thing. So I think some of it is you're just testing these ideas. You know what I mean? You're just putting them out. You're having conversations. You're putting up a web page. You're seeing, you know, you're doing some Google AdWords. You're seeing are people clicking through. And if they're not, no big deal because you've only spent a little bit of mo money and time and, and so on. You're just, you're searching for that product market fit that exists there. And, and, and so comedians are, are, are doing that also because they, they know who their audience is, you know, and they're, they're just honing that stuff along, along the way. The thing is, that sounds easy, but it's very difficult for the average person to do. It's even difficult for the average entrepreneur to do because they want to just get it locked up. Okay, here it is. And it's why, it's why business schools used to teach you to build a big business plan, to work it all out, work all the, all the conditionals and, and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, I never asked my students to do that. It's a waste of time. I'm like, make a pitch, write a one pager, you know, like get the ideas down and then start testing it. That's there. And so one of the things that I, when I, when I work with kind of more corporate kind of audiences, I do this thing. Um, I'm not sure I can say it because we want to keep this G-rated. I'll call it. I'll call it shtick storming, but you can imagine the word that it really is. And, and this is to brainstorm truly terrible ideas, right? And so, so this, the act of shtick storming is great because it, it overcomes all the problems with brainstorming, which is people hold back because they don't want to be criticized and so on. But what ends up happening is sometimes one of these ideas is quote unquote so crazy it might actually work. And so thinking in reverse can't guarantee results, but it's just a useful practice there. But it, you know, you don't know until you test it in the same way that you test your mundane idea. Will it will it work? Well, so I kind of love it because you've actually done it. I'm interested in what that process looked like. You know, so most people in academia in my experience they like the prestige of letters after their name and, and the professional respect and the whatever, right? And so naming, you know, intentionally naming your own thing, hurl, is kind of breaking the rules, right? So yes. um, intentionally showing up as not serious in a world that just worships seriousness, yes. right? Can you talk about like what were the small survivable bets that you were doing or how did you test the waters or what did that look like for your career? Yeah. So, so you're right. Like, you know, one of the things that was fascinating when I stumbled on the question of what makes things funny, I was, first of all, I was perplexed by that question. I could not answer it. And part of the reason I couldn't answer it was not only had I never thought about it before, despite if you had said to me, Pete, are you a funny professor? I would be like, yeah, I'm like by professional, by professor standards, I am hilarious. By comedian standards, I'm terrible, but you know, it's a low bar in academia. 
and I, I valued comedy in the way that many people did, but I had never read a paper about humor. I never read a book about humor. I had no idea. And one of the reasons, despite it being an age old question, one that goes back to at least great Greek philosophy, at least as early documented as Greek philosophy, probably before that, certainly was, I was like, why is no one studying this thing? I mean, there were people studying it, but there was these little niche, you know, very small, like not mainstream psychologists who were doing it. And I'm like, they were studying things that I think were way less important. But at first blush, as you've alluded to, it doesn't seem like a serious topic. You know, it's, it's the problem is even academics sort of spend most of their lives processing very shallowly, you know? And so when I, so my first step was, let me try to see if I can answer this question, if there's something valuable that I can add to the literature. And then let me just start small. And I started with one paper. And so I, I wrote a paper with, with Caleb Warren, who's the co-creator of, of, of this theory that we developed, and we published that paper. And, and, and it happened, and we, aim, we did something that, that most humor researchers don't do. We aimed for one of the top journals in the field. So there was a, there's this, this very niche journal, I can't even get it in my library, called Humor. And so all of the humor researchers played in that playground. They just talked to each other. And I was like, well, that's not going to be useful. This work, we got to hit the, the number one um, top, top level journals. And that paper, I swear to you, got in with no revisions. It's the only time I've ever written a paper that the editor said, you can ignore the reviewers. We're accepting this paper without edits. It was incredible. Now, when that paper came out, the, the, the journal sent out a press release and my phone blew up. And I was like, oh, I think I'm on to something here. And then the next thing that I did was I gave a public talk. I gave a TEDx talk based on the ideas that were in that. Yeah, in I that saw book. it was good. It's, you know, it's a great talk. Now, I worked very hard on it. And it, you know, it, I made a pedophile joke. And so I don't think it made it onto the TED website for that reason. And so unfortunately, but nonetheless, <laughs> it's, it's got, you know, it, it has organically gotten a lot of attention sort of naturally people finding it you know that's it and then the third thing that happened was and again i was it was too early to give that tedx talk in many ways you know what i mean i had barely been studying the topic the this the, the next thing was my first book was not an opus it wasn't it wasn't dan ariely's predictably irrational that was based on 10 years of research that book was an exploration. It was like, we're going to use this book in order to test and develop these ideas. And so that was just sort of became something I did, which it was like, well, I'm just going to try this. I'm going to make something. I'm going to make it as good as I can, but I'm not going to make it because I am the world's expert on this thing. What happened was I, I gradually became the world's expert by doing things that world experts do. And that, that, uh, that's like that, that sort of, you know, being fearless part of, of stick to business that I was talking about, you know, because it's scary to do those things. It's uncertain. You may, you know, and, and to be honest, my first book did not do that well. Uh, you know, I don't regret doing it, but it wasn't, it wasn't the splash that I had hoped that it was going to be. Yeah. And yet having done it feels like a stepping stone to where you have been able to get to. Well, the second book doesn't happen if I haven't done the first book, you know, you know, because I, I, I did the second book completely differently. And I, I believe that I could, 
I could do the book solo, you know, so I, the first book I did with a, with a, a journalist. And so I think a lot of people don't realize the value of trying and middling success, <laughs> you know, that may come because, you, you know, we live long lives and, and these, these efforts end up, we're, you know, really we're trying to build, I'm trying to build this sort of craftsperson mentality in anyone who listens to me. And I think the, the average entrepreneur would benefit from thinking about their endeavors as, as a, like a blacksmith. You know, which is like not every sword a blacksmith makes is their best work, but the idea is the next one is going to be better, the next one's going to be better, and so on. I love it. Well, I think this is great as far as maybe we'll wrap here on the principle of reverse it and we'll tell everybody to tune into the next episode of our, our Mage Stick mini series. Any anything else you want to close out for, for reverse it? We feel like we got it covered. You know, I have one thing that might be useful. Yeah. And that is the, something that comedians do better than anyone else. And that is they turn a bug into a feature, right? So, so we often lament our weaknesses. We often lament our, our personal weaknesses and our professional weaknesses and so on. And, and there's, sort of, there's sort of three strategies, I think, that you can have. So one is, is you could just ignore your weakness and focus on your strengths. I, I think that's fine to do, you know. Shaquille O'Neal never really worked that hard on his free throws. And he never needed to because he was the world's best dunker, shot blocker, and rebounder. You know, so that's fine. The next one is to, is to try to improve your weakness, at least get it to a place where it's not holding you back. What comedians do is they, they often turn their weakness into a strength. You know, so they do this with their self-deprecation, for example. They, they'll make fun of how they look. You know, they're too tall, they're too short, they're too hairy, they're too bald, they're too fat, they're too skinny. They use that as a way to, to create comedy and to license themselves to be able, so if they can criticize themselves, they can criticize others. But turning these weaknesses into strengths, I think, is something that's really cool when businesses do this. I'll give a quick example of Buckley's cough syrup. This is, this is fitting in a time of COVID, right? So Buckley's was sitting like number nine in the cough syrup market in Canada, as a Canadian, you probably know Buckley's. Buckley's had a problem, which was not only was, were they sitting at number nine, which means like when you have a severe cough, you're not variety seeking. You just want the best cough syrup possible. The other problem they had was their, the, the Buckley's tasted terrible. And so you could be like, okay, well, let's, we could try to ignore that. Well, that's not a good idea. We could try to fix it, pour a bunch of sugar into our cough syrup and add cherry flavor. Or you could do what Buckley's did, which was roll out a campaign, which is it tastes awful and it works, right? The implication being you want cough syrup that works. Medicine is not supposed to taste good. And actually the worst tasting medicine might be the one that's best at murdering that virus that you have. And Buckley's went with, on the basis of that turning a bug into a feature to number one in the market and eventually got acquired by, by a pharmaceutical company. It's great. Great reversal. Well, and I love in the book you bring up Gmail had trouble. Sometimes the emails wouldn't go out fast enough. And mm -hmm. so instead of covering it up or pretending it wasn't a problem or trying to get it to go at least a little bit faster, instead they add the undo send feature, which yeah. is like one of my very favorite features on <laughs> on Gmail because I'm always <laughs> typing too fast, hit enter and go, oh, oh, oh I, didn't spell, I didn't spell check that, right? So my my one little attempt at, at what you're talking about is when I've taught in my consulting life, when I've taught events, I make a joke and I say, okay, listen, we're going to play a game here. 
I'm going to intentionally spell some words wrong today on the whiteboard, and whoever can spot that wins a chocolate bar. <laughs> and okay. at, at first, people can't tell. Am I joking? What? And then they figure out, I'm really terrible at spelling. That's brilliant. <laughs> and they all think it's so funny, and then we're, we're laughed for like two days straight about how many things I can't spell when I'm supposed to be the one who... I'm supposedly advanced enough to be teaching this event, but I can't spell regular words half the time, you know? Yes. I yeah. love it. And because, you know, it, and it's almost costless. Like, it costs you a few chocolate bars, and everybody else is better off for it. And you can now write things on the board without anxiety. Well, and those really detailed people who is just like nails on a chalkboard, they almost can't hear what I'm saying because they're so worried I'm spelling things wrong, you know? Uh -huh. It gives them a chance to get over it. You know what I mean? That's fantastic. That's a, that's a way to think like a comedian. <laughs> I love it. Okay, well, listen, where's the best place for people to connect with you? Where's the best place to buy the book? What, where should we send folks? I think PeterMcGraw.org is the best place to, to find me. I'm on, I'm on Twitter a bit. I'm not LinkedIn. I love to connect with people on LinkedIn. And the book, of course, is available on Amazon. No, Audible. Audible.com, people. The, uh, there Get the audio book and, I... and listen to it while you're commuting, while you're driving around. That's how I got through it yesterday. And it, yes, it is it a good is. book. I'm a fan. If you, if you don't like my voice, though, stay away because I actually read my book. Too funny. Okay, everybody, please tune in for uh, the next part of our Major Stick miniseries with Dr. Peter McGraw. Bye.